Vision, episode number 41. This week's guest is Josh Klein, hacker extraordinaire. Say hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. Very well said, sir. <laughs> and the, the giggling Brit, as usual, is Kevin Marks, and I'm Deb Schultz, and our, our fearless third, Heather, is on her way to some uh, Wi-Fi connection somewhere on the East Coast. So she will be joining us shortly. So this week's been kind of a big week in um, the Americas, re uh, politics. Anyone have any reaction to... Um, what shenanigans the major news companies decided to put up in terms of technology this time. I always laugh at what, at what like, sort of the CNNs and the MSNBCs, you know, laugh at about technology. Anyone have any, uh, any anyone watch any of that major news coverage? I Kevin, didn't. did you? <laughs> no. Josh, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was my point. I didn't watch it either, but I heard about it from John Stewart. So there you go. So we can get into that a little bit later. For those of us joining us um, for the first time, this is Tummelvision. Tummeling, for those who don't know, is a Yiddish word that the three of us have chosen to use to describe the art of social engagement. And it comes from um, someone who can catalyze others to action. So the art of social engagement, we would say both online, offline, in society, tech, and business. And uh, we are this week, I am in San Francisco. Um, Kevin, where art thou? I'm in Mountain View, California. At the office? I'm actually at the office. I came back here rather than stay at um, IEW, which we can talk about too. We are going to talk about that. And Joshua, where you be? I'm out in New York. You're in New York, where it is getting later. And so what else? Uh, so Kevin, you were at, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, before we jump in a little bit with Josh on this great book that he wrote, which is so Tumalesque. Uh, you were, you and I were both overlapped a little bit at IIW. Do you want to tell the folks listening what IIW is? Because it does have a lot of overlaps with what we talk about on Tumalvision. Sure. So IIW is the Internet Identity Workshop, which is a long-standing um, unconference or um, a, um, around the field of identity on the internet, which um, is sort of seems like a very broad topic. It's about the kind of ways we um, identify ourselves both to computers and to each other online and the standards around that. Um, and it's been run by uh, Kalia Hamlin and Phil Winley for is it five years now. Um, if not, no, it might be, more, might be even might longer. Be more. Now. Might be yeah. Maybe six years. Um, and they hold this twice a year. And it's basically a three-day event with, without a preset agenda. Um, and people come together from many different companies um, and, and as individuals and discuss the issues around identity and standards on the Internet. And it's been a very fruitful place for um, establishing standards um, like OpenID, um, OAuth, WebFinger, portable contacts, um, a lot of the infrastructure that we use for um, navigating around the web. Um, and it is very much a Tumblr's conference in that Kalia and Phil, um, and Doc Searles too, who also, who also sort of um, helps out there, very much make sure that it's a place where conversations do happen and they are productive. The, 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 it starts with a, you know, a, a large circle of everyone proposing sessions, we scatter off into different rooms and talk about it and report back at the end of each day. Um, and, each, and each of these sessions is, is sort of made up, but they do daisy chain one, one to the other. And it's always, I always come away from it with um, 
having learned something and and also being ready to work on several new things. It's it, it's it's one of the best conferences I go to. Yeah, it's a real for for uh, you know Kevin just listed a whole bunch of um, internet standards that many folks might not know what they are. <laughs> But basically, every time you log onto the internet, you know you sort of have an identity, and there needs to be protocols to let you connect with one from one service to the other with the open web or otherwise. And this is a whole—it's a conference. But for those who attend usual business conferences, I would think of it more as a working group. And a lot of—it's—it's it's very geeky. It's in, it, even in the geek circle, it's pretty pretty really geeky. But it's a lot of folks who are really working on behalf, I'd say, of the end user to ensure that we kind of have a voice in how uh, we're represented um, on the internet and that make it easy for people to know what they're doing. It's, it's, it's a really, uh, it's an interesting group of people. They're working on the kind of stuff that we probably won't, you, you may never see, but you'll benefit from it from a user experience standpoint, I would say. Is that a good way to yeah. sort of hack it out? I think that's... Um, that's and the other thing that's, that's, that's good about it is that it's, um, it's, it tends to be some, some somehow the way that it's set up and the way the conversation spoke is that it's a kind of a, a neutral ground. Um, somebody described it as the sort of the Switzerland of web standards. Um, so people can come in from lots of different um, companies like Microsoft and Google and Yahoo and Facebook and and, and so on, um, and actually have a conversation about this stuff without bringing lots of corporate agenda with the, with them, but but working with the spirit of how do we get this stuff to actually interoperate well. And yeah, that's, that, that's, yeah. that's that's its sort of strongest achievement because so many standards meetings end up being like sort of people defending their corners rather than sort of crossing over and saying how can we actually make this stuff work. Yes, so that atmosphere is really really useful to me. Yeah, there are geek there are geek tribes for the non geek geek among us. Just like and they and they run a little deeper than Mac versus PC, and um, <laughs> and so it is really um, and you know with with tumbling on mine, which is you know the skill that enables people to sort of connect across party lines. That's a you know that was a little hat thrown in there for the politics this week. Um, Kalia and her team and crew do a really good job. And there's really, we should have her on at some point to talk about the subtle tricks that she does in that open space way, uh, you know, of, of getting folks to participate. Um, but without further ado, I thought, what else happened? What, you know, we were both so heads down this week. There wasn't a lot of really, you know, I'm, I'm waiting till Heather joins us to hear about the rally for insanity since Heather was on the mall in D.C. with the rest of the crazies. And that was a rally for sanity. The, the insane one was in San Francisco. Oh, right. The rally for sanity. Wasn't it insanity? I keep getting confused. I don't know. But it was pretty, I'd be curious to hear what that was like um, down on the ground. But I, I don't want to wait too long to invite our guest Josh in to the conversation and Josh and I, Josh, I don't even remember how we met. Did you remember how we met? Where did we meet? Uh, you know, I have no idea, but it's all, it's sort of been one of those things where I felt as though we always were trying to schedule another meeting. Yes. Yes, that is true. So we never actually have met. We just keep trying to schedule meetings. This is true. Um, <laughs> so, when I, so, so Josh is, is, is kind of one of these folks who is, is, um, Challenging to describe the kind of people we love to have on um, on Tumble Vision in a good way, and just came out with this brand new book called Hacking Work. And so, Josh, I'm going to let you sort of, how do you like to introduce yourself these days, and what kind of projects and stuff are you working on? And then we're going to talk a little bit how the book relates to tumbling. I think. Mm. Um, well, so these days I'm doing a lot of consulting uh, in the VC space and also to some large companies, usually around technology innovation. 
So that's that's the shortest version I can give. There's some other stuff like uh, working on some data mining apps. Uh, in fact, Kevin, I was just looking up how we know each other by um, mining the social graph to see who I know that knows you. Uh, but I've managed to break that script just before I came on air, so now I can't give you any useful results. Oh. Uh, yeah, sorry, guys. Oh. So there's, there's that. Uh, and then a couple other technology projects as well. Uh, nothing with birds recently. So. Nothing with birds, yes. Um, please please tell our, our listening viewers, our fellow Tumblers, the bird story, because this is pretty cool. Okay. Someone someone informed me today that I need to stop not talking about it. So You need yeah. to stop not talking. I agree. You do need to stop. Not. It's been long enough. Time to go back. Everyone's forgotten. Let's go. Tell the story again. Yeah, so I, I made a vending machine for crows. So... Uh, yeah, it's, but, it's, a box, it's a box that trains crows to pick up money off the ground and deposit it in exchange for a peanut. I think that is awesome. And how much money did you get? Uh, well, you know, I'm on my yacht right now. Ah, there you go. Awesome. Yeah, so that's, that's worked out very well. Oh, uh, Kevin, are you back? I think we lost you for a sec. I'm back, yes. Skype just uh, crashed the next day on me, sir. You crashed. And then I think we're almost ready to get Heather, though. We keep losing her. So how long did it take you to train the crows to drop money in a box, Josh? Uh, it took about uh, 90 seconds. And, Seriously? Well, yeah, because I've worked primarily with captive crows. So basically what happens is, you know, you put out the box and uh, you, you make sure the crow's hungry. And then you put money in the box and the food comes out and the bird flies over and tries to steal whatever you have in hand and throws it in the box and then refuses to do it again for the next three weeks. Got it. And That's so, perfect. interesting. And they just go around picking up. So you have your own little army of minions of crows is what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, not yet. Um, next step is to reverse engineer the box by someone who actually knows electrical engineering, which I do not, so that we can make a kit that everyone can download. So that's, that's the goal for the next and so the reason that I love this story about crows is because this just gives you a little bit of insight into how Josh's brain is wired. <laughs> Josh is an innovator extraordinaire, looks at problems from a very different and skewed approach in a good way. I, I use all these words because I think it's awesome, some of the work that he's done. And I am completely envious of his ability to build and code this stuff because I just come up with wacky ideas, but I can't build any of it. So what was the impetus? So tell, you know, usually our, our, our mantra here is not to do a lot of self-promotion, but when it's, when it's around a book, I'm, I'm highly intrigued. We're highly intrigued. So explain a little bit about hacking work for, the, for folks. Like what was your impetus for writing it? And, you know, what are folks going to get? out of like reading it and stuff. So the, the book came about when my co-author and I, uh, Bill Jensen. Hey, sorry to interrupt, Josh. Whoa. Hello. Heather, is that you? It's Heather from Savannah. Hey. Oh, you're in Savannah. Cool. Hey. Welcome aboard, my dear. So Josh is just giving us a little intro into the book and then we're gonna um, talk a little bit more about it. So I want you to jump right in and then we're, we're saving time to hear about the rally for sure. Did you give a quick overview of tumbling? Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, Josh, lay it on us. <laughs> I feel like I've come late to a dinner party where everyone's had just enough to drink. That's what tumble vision is. <laughs> that's, oh the best, that's, the, that's the best description ever. <laughs> <laughs> You should have done it when we were when we go back to video. It's even more fun. We all drink. 
Oh, and, we, and when you listen to the, the taped version, you're going to hear our awesome theme music, which is like kitschy 70s rock, complete with, complete with cowbells, sir. <laughs> so you're going to love it. So back to the book. Hmm. Okay. And we, so lost, we lost Heather again. She'll keep working on it. Go ahead. Oh. Um, so anyway, met my co-author at TED when I was I presented there, uh, and we just had an ongoing conversation about how messed up big companies were. And um, at one point, he was saying to me, you know, Josh, I'm just really frustrated because I keep talking to big companies, telling them how messed up they are, and they're not fixing the problem. And I said, well, of course they're not fixing the problem. It's not in their interest to fix the problem. And he said, well, what can we do? I've been doing this for 25 years. What are we going to do? And I said, well, let's get all the employees to rise up and overthrow them. And you could see the, like, 60s-era fervor suddenly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, we decided like that... a revolution. There you go. So we decided, well, you know, that clearly there's a, a book here of some kind. Let's do some research and see what it is. And you came up with... So is... then, then we came up with Hacking Work. So the idea behind Hacking Work is... Um... Is it a cookbook? Or... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I was chat. I was channeling my Twilight Zone. Hacking work. It's a cookbook. No, it's a cookbook. Anyway, Long Pig. It's all about Long Pig. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No. So the book is it's a business book, and it's basically for anyone who is curious about how to improve their careers and their work life. And the premise that it takes is that individual employees, uh, whether you're the CEO or the guy in the mailroom or anything else, are more empowered than ever before to bring innovation to the companies that they work in. And that may or may not be in line with the corporate mandates or the letter of the law that the company that you're in uh, has spelled out for you. So hence the hacking part of hacking work. And, and how do you define hacking? Because I love that, having read the book. I love the fact that, you know, I very often, um, Kevin, being an authentic geek, says that I can call myself a geek, but I feel that I cannot call myself a geek because I don't code. So I was, of course, completely enamored of the fact that you said everyone hacks. Oh, yeah. It's not about coding. Yeah. So, so hacking in your mind is like what? So, well, hacking came originally from uh, like the car culture back before the internet existed where, you know, if you took a glass-packed carburetor and you broke it and then you mounted it on backwards or, you know, I, knowing nothing about the cars, I'm messing this metaphor up from the beginning, but, you know, put it on in such a way that it made a very loud rumble on your tiny little engine. That was a hack, right? Because it was it was not using it the way it was supposed to be used, but you were using it to create a better effect. So that was a hack, probably. I'm guessing from a hacksaw. Maybe your listeners can correct me on that. But uh, yeah, yeah. then eventually, it went on to be used by engineers on the internet and with computers. And basically, what it means is understanding a system well enough that you can take it apart and put it back together in a new or better way. And that's what I had. So if you look at what you do, Deb, it's about, again, what tumbling is about, is taking you know, the ability to work with people across different silos and who normally wouldn't connect and connecting them for a new right. and better effect. We hope. And, and do you think that we're at this really unique time that, that you know, this ability or need to hack is, is, is more prevalent than ever, or people are doing it more, or it's needed more, E, all the above. I don't know. Is we at a different point because of it? E, F, G, H, and J. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that we found from all the research we did is that 
work hacks were the kind of thing that everyone across every generation does, did, and have always done. Uh, right. When we started, we expected that the millennials, you know, Gen Y, or people born after 85 or so, would be doing this right and left, and they would have a huge incidence of doing it more than anything. But in fact, what we found is that everybody did it, um, regardless of how old you were. Ooh, look, we're calling someone. I wonder who it could be. Hello. Santa? <laughs> Santa. Ho, ho, it's, ho. Look, it's Heather. <laughs> Wow. Uh, so have we you been good little boys and girls? <laughs> <laughs> no, we've been hacking. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, just in explaining hacking is sort of like working around the system, right? You know, improving on stuff and not taking the current structures of whatever it might be for granted. Um, uh, right, and that and that I think is like ultimately cool. And and tumblers, like it's it's not surprising to me that you found them across all organizations everywhere, right? Because there are people in every organization that have learned how to get around the system, right, to make things work. Right, and that's what you have to do. Otherwise, you can't get your job done. Right, exactly. I remember, I mean, this is going to sound like a boring corporate story, but to me, it is so indicative of where we are today in the world and what we need to do more. My first gig out of college was at Citibank, of all places. Don't know how I landed at a financial institution, but, you know, it was a recession. Actually, I landed there because I knew PageMaker, and they needed someone to lay out some design. So I landed there, and I, it was in a uh, software division, and we found out that, you know, all the big companies who use the software would call the 800 number to get help. And the people on the line would find out that the software was actually broken and the help desk would figure out ways to, you know, sort of 10 extra steps to fix the problem. But of course, that knowledge would stay only with the help desk. And then when the new version of the software would get designed, it would never be fixed. <laughs> so, the, so the real knowledge lay between the customer and the customer service people, but never to the developers and engineers rebuilding the product. But they had a hack. They worked around it, and they helped the customers figure out how to do it. And those people are hidden in companies everywhere. And ultimately, there was this one person who was like, this is ridiculous, and um, contacted an engineer and, you know, in the headquarters and told them what was going on and saved the day, so to speak. So, I mean, this stuff has been going on for years, right? Like you said, car culture and now. But I think now we, we can do more of it, right? Because the tools are, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you describe is what Best Buy did, Lucia right. Nation. So Gary Keeling, you right. know, sitting in a meeting and saying, you know, look, all these corporate mandates are not, you know, corporate policy is not reaching the floor. We need to get a lot of, you know, we need to figure out what's going wrong on the floor of our actual store. So he set up a wiki, and lo and behold, three-fourths of the entire company suddenly hopped on to provide suggestions for how to improve the company. And now it's, you know, the leading competitor right. in the space. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's all about like just you know let 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 people do what they do best. You know, we um, haven't had him on the show yet, but we need to. Is Valdis Krebs who does this sort of? We have so had him on the show. <laughs> we, what was that? What was that? What was that? We have absolutely had him on the show. We did. When we Am were I... on Twit, he was on the show. Oh, that's right. When we were Twit, we were still Twit. It was a while ago. I talked to him so much that I forget when, in what contexts. And you know, he talked also about all these people hidden in organizations. That you know, he, his blog is Network Weaving, and and that and he's seen this big uptick in like. So, what's the reaction been to when you talk about hacking work to people? Well, Are they like threatened, or they think it's like, oh, I get it, you know? All of the above. I mean, it's 
it's particularly interesting. You can you can kind of map a spread between people that love their jobs, love what they do on the on the one side, and people that hate their jobs on the other. And the resistance to the idea sort of goes from you know from the people that love their jobs to people that hate it. And the more that people hate their jobs, the more they want to defend the fact that they can't break the rules about it. Right. right. I have a question, Josh. To what degree do coders and programmers dislike you using the word hack? to apply to something other than coding? Good question. Mm -hmm. And why, if so? You know, I have received no pushback whatsoever in that direction. Uh, and it may, be, it may just be because the, the hardcore geeks think it's entertaining that the plebes are using their terminology themselves, but, <laughs> but perhaps... But you're, but you're hardcore. You're, you know, you're from the community, so you can get away with it, no? I suppose. I mean, I don't know that I would call myself hardcore, but um, do the hardcore call themselves hardcore? No, no. never. Not, not the truly hardcore. The posers who like the fashion call themselves hardcore. There you go. Right. Oh, yeah. I have no fashion, so that's... Right. What was our metaphor last week? Board shorts. Board shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Board shorts. That's that a poser. Was, it was our metaphor. What were we talking I don't remember. We were talking about posers. It was we're brilliant. About it was great. Somebody trying, it was like in the 80s when, when all of right. you started selling beachwear as though you were a surfer right? You know, or skateboarder. Uh -huh. So you got to feel like it without surfing or skateboarding or falling uh, in. I see. Mm -hmm. So would it sort of be like me wearing a t-shirt with a, you know, some, you know, Unix code on it? <laughs> oh, it's, it's like um, Chrome selling all those messenger bags. It's, yeah. Right. It's like Chrome selling messenger bags. Exactly. I'm a biker too. <laughs> Yay, exactly. Well, that would be every hipster within 10 block radius of where I'm sitting. Um, that's <laughs> cool. That's cool. I love it. So, uh, so you've been talking a lot about this stuff, Josh. What's the reactions been like as you're on your official book tour? Uh, it's been well. You know, generally it's been really good. So people have have come up, uh, you know, after our speeches and whatnot, and, and basically said, you know, look, I've been doing this subversively a little bit here and there, just you know, trying to ease the pain a little bit. Now I'm really motivated to go and um, you know confront my boss with this solution to this big problem we've got. Or I've, I, you know, I'm going to go now and really explore the free tools that are used to make my job much more efficient. Or basically getting them to endorse the idea that they can go and do a much better job by not being so scared of doing a better job. And um, to what degree are you talking about, like, can you give us maybe a specific story uh, where it's about people communicating? Or how often is, what you, is that what you're suggesting people do, is change the way they're communicating with each other? Well, that's so in the book, we talk about hard hacks and soft hacks. And hard hacks are when you change a thing, and soft hacks are when you change a person, which basically means change how you interact with people. So, a lot of the hacks that, that we're talking about doing have to do with negotiating with folks. And it could be everything from documenting how much more productive you are by using. Um, Google Docs as opposed to Microsoft Office, and then after a month's time going to your boss and saying, look, it's free, it's online, and here's how much more efficient I've been with it, right? So that's one thing. Or it could be, you know, I just got an email today from someone uh, who is saying, and this is from a, an old friend of, of Bill's, uh, who is saying that, Bill was saying this is not someone that normally breaks. He, Bill is your co-author. Yes. Co-author, yeah. 
So, um, can you say, I don't know if you've introduced him yet. I'm sorry. I got on the call a bit, the show a little bit late. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Bill Jensen. Whose background is just for people who are listening. who have no idea who he is. So he's been doing, uh, change management within companies for a number of years. Okay. Yeah. He's a change management consultant. Yeah. So he helps companies figure out how to change. And his, his bailiwick, uh, he's written a number of books, um, largely around simplicity. So how to simplify things. And uh, so that's, that's where he's been coming from with that. And it's, it's worked pretty well. I mean, corporations seem like the antithesis of simplicity. Indeed. That's why he's been busy for so long. <laughs> that's where you go when you're a consultant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, pushing that boulder uphill, right? Amen. So it's it was been it's been great working with him. So with with some of your soft hacks, do you have any sort of um, how do you talk about those? Since tumbling is kind of a soft hack in a way. Right. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, the whole idea of hacking, since the the term, some people see it as being kind of edgy. Um, soft hacks are basically examining the networks around you that you take for granted, and suddenly it's like, oh, you know. I always bring, uh, you know, on Valentine's Day, I always bring cookies for, to the whole office because I know that shortly thereafter we have a company review. Well, okay, that's a hack, right? Okay, I mean, we, need, we need to pause. Heather, he said cookies. Yeah, but he said, like, review, corporate review. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but forget corporate review. He said cookies. That's your soft hack. Heather yeah, used to bring bring cookies to her shows. I think no, I, I make cookies, and I have yeah. a show where I bake cookies with the audience. I've baked 50,000 cookies in the show. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. And I talk a lot about, well, it's run a lot. I talk you know, about coming out, about people being different together. I figured, you know, how scary is this lesbian if she's making cookies with you? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 I mean, I have transgender. I mean, it, and I, it, I, this stuff plays everywhere. It's some translating stuff, but it's very good to give people something to do and a promise of treats. Yeah, and I love the fact, Josh, that you talk about people bringing cookies as a soft hack. Like, you recognize all those subtle, small behaviors that make a room safe or make a difference in, in, in how relationships change in any community, right? Yeah, absolutely. What other, what other examples have you had? So one that I got just, um, just today, again, from a, an old friend of Bill's, was um, he worked for a company for years where they, the company gave them an expense account, but it was kind of a cheapo expense account that lots of different um, restaurants wouldn't take the card. So one of the employees at the company, whenever they ran into a restaurant or a service or whatever it was that they needed to expense that didn't take it, they would put the name of the of the company or service onto the corner of a whiteboard along with the date. And so this list just started growing and growing. And when it filled up half the whiteboard, the company changed it and gave them a real expense account. <laughs> That's a good hack. Right. And it wasn't, you know, it's not going into the CEO's office and waving your arms and thumping your chest. It's just, you know, oh, yeah, I'm just keeping a list of how often this is a pain in the ass. And after a while, it's pretty copiously evident that it's a big pain in the ass and that needs to be changed that is interesting it's the so so people overcomplicate the stuff is what you're saying a lot a lot of the time i mean and so this again you, you know you were asking what the response to the book is um a lot of the time people will come up afterwards and say you know this hacking work stuff i've been doing this for years <laughs> yes, you have and they're like that's great 
So, you know, and we're like, yeah, keep doing more of it. And they're like, okay, that sounds good. Well, I'm going to start doing this now in other ways. And that's really what it's about is, okay, we've all, we've all broken the rules a little or bent the rules to make things better because systems are generally inflexible and the world, it turns out, requires a great deal of flexibility. So the premise of the book is that things are changing faster than ever before. So now's the time for people to start doing more experimentation, taking the lead in delivering the innovation that they know they have to offer to their companies. Yeah, but people are afraid of, um, you know, getting flack politically or uh, getting fired. I mean, people, the economy is pretty tough out there right now. And I would think it's going to make some people, if you're in a corporation to begin with, a big corporation, you're probably pretty risk averse. So yes. how is it that you're willing to take some experience doing this as, as you know, it's going to, don't you think it feels risky to most people to do this kind of thing? Absolutely. So that's the biggest pushback that we get is, you know, I love what you're talking about, but you don't know what it's like in my company. And unfortunately, you know, Bill, my co-author and I have both worked for, you know, government. We've worked for educational systems. We've worked for some of the biggest gnarliest bureaucracies around there. So I think, think we, we kind of get the idea, right? There are a lot of companies where the boss really doesn't want to hear your cool new idea. <clears throat> but I've yet to meet a boss that you can go to and say, look, here's how I can make you look really good by delivering twice as much work and half the time at three times the quality. Do you mind? Right? Like most bosses are pretty keen on that. And that really is what hacking is all about. I mean, for me, I, uh, I once, I don't know if I still have it, registered emotionalgtd.com. Because <laughs> a lot of what I do is really get into emotional stuff. That's kind of the heart of performance. And uh, it doesn't say, it always sounds like like corporate environment is very detached from its body. People in those environments are, you know, their authority or people who are all mostly staying safe by saying no and, and don't want to trust feeling. But no one can make a good decision, from my experience, without feeling or, or make anything happen quickly. So, I mean, isn't doing the kind of change management that uh, Bill is doing, isn't it really just being a therapist? Really? Mm, well, I would hate to call Bill a therapist. A corporate therapist. Our, all consultants are corporate therapists. Fair enough. That, well, that's the same as saying, you know, um, business books are male self-help or yeah, they are. I'm just working on my Web 2.0 talk, and that's, that's part of what I'm talking about. They are. I mean, we're seeing just enormous amounts of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Except they're not so effective because the more intellectualized they are, the less effective they are. The, the intellectual wrapper is there to make them not emotionally freak out at being aware of being emotional, even though they're being emotional anyway. Right. Well, I mean, we could have, we could have called the book... Uh, do what you love or you will die unhappy. But that seemed both accessible to <laughs> mm -hmm. maybe not as good uh, for the stuff. <laughs> but that's, that's essentially the deal, right? Is, okay, if you want to be good at what you do and enjoy your job, do what you love. You know, not complicated. And, you know, full stop. But, uh, you know, there's obviously some trappings around that that we thought were interesting. So programmer, I mean, did you yourself ever work in a large company? Oh, yeah. I worked at Oracle. I worked at Microsoft. Um, I've worked for the ODN. He did his time. Yeah, yeah. And aren't, his time. aren't programmers in those environments famously bad at communicating? What do you mean? 
<laughs> this, is Josh, this is Josh's emotion bot talking. Yeah, about. there you go. Well, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, of course. I mean, and, and uh, that's part of why I think it's useful to think about soft hacks, right? So I talked to a few guys who are absolute geniuses when it comes to coding and technology and whatnot, and talking to them about soft hacks, they really got this very quickly, and they were like, I understand now that if I can provide an emotional motivator for my manager, I can achieve more efficient results with my coding time. And it's like, well, that's not how your manager would put it, but yes. And, and so that really worked for them, right? Conversely, if you talk to someone who works in biz dev, for example, and you say, you know, if you, uh, if you consistently make sure there's not enough paper by the printer when your boss goes to use it, you'll probably have a good chance of him buying you know, excessive paper for the printer. So voila, there's a hack. Excellent. I like the attitude of that, that you're talking about with these kind of hacks. And that's really interesting what you just said about talking to the sort of geeks, the, the coders, I should say, in large corporations, you know, a la Dilbert, that rows and rows of cubicles where they just got their headphones on and not talking to anyone, if they're even allowed to have headphones. Um, it's using their language to help mm. them understand, is what you're saying. Right. They're, like, you're using their motivations to help yeah. them understand. Yeah. Exactly, because a lot of the times, you know, Heather, as you were saying earlier, in these big companies, people are really afraid. They don't want to rock the boat. It's easier to say no, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This is all well and good and true, and it's convenient if you want to stay in the same job for 25 years and then get your gold watch and retire on a pension. The problem is that that's not the reality of the world that we live in anymore. You know, on average, people have 10 different careers in their lifetime. If you have 10 different careers in your lifetime, then waiting around for the, you know, the salary bump after year nine doesn't make sense. So, Kevin, you've worked in large places and small ones. Do you think you need to do these kinds of soft hacks as much in startups as you do in, in a bigger company like Google or BT? Um. Uh -oh. In in startups, it's more you you do, but it's it's not always as inwardly directed. In startups, you're you're trying to perpetuate a hack on the world a lot of the time. It's just trying to persuade the world that you're doing something bigger than you are, or um, yes, we have a large team of engineers when it's actually just you, or you know the, those kinds of things, or um, or you, you know you you are sort of trying to operate beyond the bounds of what's actually practical and sort of scrambling to keep up. So it's it's much it is it's I suppose it's more hard hacks, but there are the soft hacks of giving the impression of being a sort of huge organization when it's actually um, one server and, and, and um, one ops guy. So there, there, is a, there is a fair bit of that. What I like about sort of the attitude of looking at all this stuff as hacks is it's kind of, you know, on the emotional side, it's very empowering. Yes. Yep. Yep. It's yeah, but thing is a real positive. But isn't, I think, still the main difficulty in the work, and this is what you almost need to tumble to get people there, yeah. is, is to get into a playful mindset because yeah. you, have to, you have to feel safe to play with things and to feel like you have the agency to do anything, including something like, ooh, I'm going to, you know, make sure the printer paper's empty. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So, the, and this, again, is something that we really try and push on is, you know, Okay, you're, so one example in the book that was really interesting was there was a, a woman that was working from home. She, got, she managed to get a job where she was basically transcribing conversations of meetings and interviews by this company and then color coding them and producing these reports that she would then mail back to the company. And at one point, her printer broke. 
and she asked the company for a new printer and they sent it in. And then, um, when she got the printer, it was a black and white, black and white printer, which meant, of course, that she couldn't produce color reports. And when she asked me, could you please send me a color printer? They said, company policy is that everyone will now use black and white printers. And she said, well, I understand that, but my job is to produce color reports. Can you please send me a color printer? And they said, the new company policy is blah, 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 right? So mm -hmm. she had to go you buy a set of highlighters to do her job, which, you know, uh. And, you know, that's the sort of, that's the sort of really bad stuff that is happening to people out there that are trying to do their jobs. And the answer, of course, is is that you have to hack around it. And ultimately, it's to the benefit of the organization. So back to your point, Heather, um, you need to get into a place where you feel comfortable and willing to play. And a lot of that has to do with recognizing that your career is in your own hands and that if you can find a way to do your job better, not only will you benefit, but the chances of you getting promoted goes up astronomically. Right. Yeah, but yeah. you still have to make that emotional shift to active versus avoidance, right? Like, oh, I'm going to just not do a thing to get in trouble versus I'm going to actually go do something. Right. And so we're, we're kind of trying to, you know, we're giving everyone the first hit free on that one by, uh, by saying, okay, here are a bunch of little things you can do that won't necessarily endanger your career, but will. And, and what's your list of little things? Or did you already hit them earlier? Oh. Printer paper. There's loads of things like printer paper, for example, or using Google Docs or. Uh, how, how is Google Docs? Tell, tell me. Back when I was doing more IT security stuff, one of my favorite tricks was to walk into a company, you know, and sit in the C-suite and ask them how much of the, how much of the company was using Google Docs. And, um, the CEO or whoever it was would always say, no, no one here uses that because it's against corporate policy. It's a threat to intellectual property, blah, 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 blah. And so then you'd open up Wireshark or whatever it was and say, okay, well, well, look here, hmm, 25 people are using Google Docs right now on your local land. And they, you know, then of course everyone has a hissy fit, but the, you have to end up circling around and saying, well, there's a reason they're doing it. And they're doing it because it's better than Microsoft Office, it turns out. Oh, this is your way of getting people out of Microsoft Office. Yes. Well, you know, not, I, I, I do not have a, uh, a public dislike of any Microsoft product. <laughs> well, I'm willing to because go on the record. They're, because they're listening everywhere. That's really funny. Yeah, I think, I think um, what's interesting about it is, is there's a technology piece, but you, there's also you need to have the confidence, playfulness, comfort zone, um, skunk works, uh, whatever it is to uh, uh, be willing to sort of take some of those baby steps, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So that's your, your Google Docs uh, starter. What are your other starter hacks? Um, let's see. Something else that's always kind of fun is to start tracking your hours or your time that you spend on different tasks. Um, and that's something you can do yourself. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that oftentimes you'll suddenly discover that you're spending a lot more time answering email or a lot more time uh, in meetings or a lot more time filling out that one form or whatever it is. Now, what's interesting about tracking it is that then you can go to whoever it is that is forcing you to do that and say, hey, this week I spent 13.75 hours doing task X. And... I, find, I can think of a better way to do that. Here's my suggestion. Now, a lot of the times when you come to somebody and you've got statistical evidence that something's not working or conversely that something is working, 
then all of a sudden you've got a pretty good case to make in terms of fixing it. Have you, yeah, have you seen, while you were talking, I was thinking, have you seen um, that there's a certain type of person within the organization who sort of gathers and shares their hacks? Yeah, there's almost always someone that... So those, are the, those are the tumblers, you know? Yeah, definitely. There's always, you know, central people in, in any network that tend to distribute things. But what, what was interesting for us in our research is that different kind of people, different people do different kinds of hacks, right, more intuitively. So I may find it very easy to um, hack the boss when he's running a meeting in terms of, you know, when he's suggesting something that everybody knows it knows is idiotic, I might be the one that always steps up and rephrases what he says in a way that we can actually go and take to our customers. Somebody else may be really good at um, figuring out how to get around the expensing system or making the, you know, getting HR to dispense with better policies or whatever it is. Everyone's got different things that they can do and, and provide. Yeah, I think of the I think of the people who are the ones who take it upon themselves to sort of organize the brown bag lunch and and um, get people together to talk about something you know that might be interesting or not around work you know that gets the people together even though it's not an official meeting you right, know right, sort of right. unofficial let's you know let's talk about this face to face instead of with a memo and a I don't know <laughs> an agenda. <laughs> Yes. Exactly. By the way, this entire conversation is reminding me why I hate big, why, why I'm so glad I'm having PTSD about my big company days. <laughs> so, so, Kevin, uh, both you and Josh, Xenophrenia has been pretty uh, regularly saying for us in our chat, you know, oh, we should just do away with corporations utterly. I mean, do you guys think that's just some pipe dream fantasy? I mean, do you really think that the corporate form will, like these mega corporations will on their own go away because of their inefficiencies? Well, uh, well, go ahead. Okay. So there's there's this sort of economic theory, Coase's theory of the firm that, that that's basically right. says companies are efficient because they reduce transaction costs. Um, it's easy to do stuff in, within a company than it is between companies because you don't have to pay people. You can just have a conversation and work stuff out. And that's the sort of the theory of the firm. And that is massively undermined by the net because it's actually often a lot more efficient to work with people in another company than to go through whatever um, 19th century procedures your company has. Um, so yeah, there is, there, is a, there is a strong countervailing force against what was the efficiency of the, of the firm because the transaction costs are now lower for everyone. So that's, that's my sort of deep economic answer. I'm sure Josh has a hacky answer too. Yeah, I, I wish I could say anything that sounded that good. <laughs> or it's the accent. It's just the it's accent. Yeah, yeah we, 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 get, we go through this every week. He just sounds really smart. And also he's read everything that was ever written, so he does actually quote real stuff, which is... Yeah. So this is, so this is my hack. It's the whole British it? economic... So, yes. so my hack is come to America with an English accent. Um, yes. And you, you get a sort of free IQ boost and everyone listens to you. It's does it work in Britain if I go there with the, the, this accent? No. You're just a stupid American then. Yeah. Not, 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 not so much, no. In some context, it will. Just to get so getting back to the thing. So, Kevin, you're saying we've got some basic economic reason the corporation isn't going to keep working because the transaction costs are lower to 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 communicate at a networked level than in a hierarchical level. Is that what what it comes down to? Right. I mean, so it's you know it's just like the Google Docs thing. Um, it's it's actually easier to put out a call for help. 
um, or you know, put out a search for something on Amazon than it is to go through your company's purchasing model to, to buy a book or, or to buy software or to, you know, to get a printer. The, the lady who had a problem because a company wouldn't supply with a color printer, well, they're 100 bucks you could buy from Amazon. Well, there, there's easier, and then there's what people require, even if it's not for a good reason. Uh, like, oh. Right, but a lot of these, you know, the other thing is that companies have this sort of, um, their processes are the sort of fossilized history of previous mistakes. Um, so when someone cocks up in a company, what you do is you say, oh, that person cocked up. We should make sure this never happens again. We should add a stage to the process that means that we check that um, that thing never happens again. And so, and so then you're, you, know, you come into the company, you're confronted with this process um, that has 25 stages and Three of them don't make any sense, but that's because they were put in because somebody made a mistake in 1973, and you now have to um, go through that procedure to make sure that never happens again. So right. there is this sort of accretion of, of, um, of busy work. You know, so it's like, um, it's like you know, the expense reporting thing is a, is a classic one, where it's like you have to have a receipt for everything. Um, and a sensible company will go, well, wait a minute, what's the, you know, what's the opportunity cost of an employee who's paid 100000 a year collecting um, receipts for, for two dollars you know that that doesn't actually make any sense in a sense of company would say okay if it's less than 50 bucks we don't care just we'll sign for it anyway and that's one of the shocking things for me about looking at the in the uk they um they somebody digitized all the expense reports for the members of parliament and posted them online and the fact that the members of parliament were like claiming five pounds for printed paper and crap like that was was quite shocking you know to me who's used to sort of semi-intelligent companies like startups or reasonably run big companies that say, well, of course you can expense anything under, under, under 50 bucks. Don't stress about it because it's not worth the, the procedure for it. Do, Josh, do you think we're going to lose the corporate form just through pure inefficiency that'll kill itself? Well, that's, you know, historically large organizations and bureaucracies get larger and larger and then they collapse, right? And if they don't collapse, then they die slowly. But you know, historically, these things are cyclic, and I think it has a lot to do with the reasons that Kevin mentioned. In terms of the longevity of the corporation, I think that all the things that were just said about the efficiencies the net provides, uh, undermining the large, you know, extremely structuralist uh, nature of an organization is largely true, but it sort of falls down when you start talking about atoms instead of bits. Right. So, for example, you know, steel manufacturing is probably not getting an enormous boost in terms of um, networking of their bits thanks to the net, right? Now, obviously, there, there are ways that this happens exogenously, but shipping a tin can from one side of the country to the other is not happening extremely much faster because you can email ahead of time. Unless you get to what Chris Anderson's writing about where you're making those things locally, but you can only right. 3D print so much stuff. Right. Well, you know, the... Pinoco guys are, are coming up with platforms and systems around that. I think in 10 years, we will have a lot more of this long tail of manufacturing stuff. But sure. and, and when you talk to big companies around atoms and bits, it's kind of like, I don't know if the big companies are going to go away, but I think that their role could morph into what they are good at, which is the distribution piece. Like if they were smart, they would, you know, they could focus on the, their distribution stuff because that a global company has that a local one doesn't versus right versus the other way around right yeah absolutely that would definitely be smart so Josh, it's, it's too threatening did you see um like the tumblers you were running into and working on the book uh particular tricks they were using 
Hmm. Well, no, nothing that I think is safe for children to hear, but uh, I'll give you... I'll, I'll well, give you. just so you know, we're the only explicitly rated business podcast on iTunes, so... <laughs> and, 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 and damn proud of it. So, <laughs> go for it. Okay, well, so I'll give you a converse example of someone who is absolutely not a Tumblr suddenly discovering the values of Tumblr. Um, at one of my talks in, I gave in, in Ottawa, I met a guy afterwards who came up, you know, ran up to the stage immediately as soon as I was done. You know, as, as soon as he was able to get a word, and he said, look, I want you to know, I appreciate that what you did was difficult to stand up there and tell us this, but I think you're absolutely wrong, and what you're preaching is complete anarchy, and it's the destruction of the social system the way that people right. have tried to make it. Well, it is a destruction of the system as you see it. absolutely is. That's the point. Right. <laughs> But that's not how he meant it, right? So anyway, I said, okay, well, thanks for that opinion. Uh, and thanks also for waiting till I was done to voice it. Uh, and then he said, no worries. Thanks for letting me say that. And then he left. Well, two and a half weeks later, I got an email. And this guy said, um, you know, listen, I'm the guy that came up after your talk and thought that you were completely out to lunch. I've been working at the same company for 23 years. I was about to retire and get my retirement pension. Uh, a few weeks after that talk, and the day after that talk, they fired me. And they wow. pretty pretty obviously they fired me so that they wouldn't have to pay me the pension, right? So he said that there were a, a tough couple weeks, but eventually I started thinking about what you're talking about, and I went and I made a Facebook account, and I made a LinkedIn account, and I made a Twitter account, and I started reaching out, and I discovered that I had a much larger network than I thought, and I got hired for a job that I've always wanted at a company making much more money. Uh, and I'm actually only working four days a week. So thanks. So that, for me, is about as good a success as you could possibly ask for. Because essentially what happened is he, he realized the value of the network. And he but he only realized the value of the network because he had pain enough to uh, be thrown out of his existing way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that well, is how real change happens. I think it happens because yeah. of people. The technology's there. You can go use all that stuff you told them about how to connect to the network, but it's only because he internally went, oh, I'm going to do this now. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. I mean, you can't get around the fact that you know, until people decide to do something, they're not going to do it. Um, but there's no question that it's frightening. I mean, I get a similar response from some people when I... Um, you know, do I'm presenting stuff for someone to be in ITC's workshops where I teach people how to run large conversations. But the, the kind of luck I have in those situations is people want to feel like people are listening to them. And it's very hard to pretend, you know, around <laughs> that thing. And it's a very useful way. It's like a, the only moment for me, this is my way of hacking companies, right, to do this, because it's the one place where people are like, yes, I need to do this so people will listen to me. So you get this moment where they have to actually be in the present. You go like, are they listening? Like, look, let's check in. <laughs> uh, which doesn't happen much in corporate world. But, you know, for some reason, I'm mean, all of a sudden, I worked at Apple, which is maybe, was, was always spoken to me, uh, told, I was always told I was there that it's, it's the only large company everybody here would ever work at. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was before jobs came back and it was one hack it was nothing but hacks it was a completely right. hackalicious place and because of that what a nightmare i mean everybody was doing their own thing there was no clear direction overall and the company wasn't doing so well we all you know we were all building interesting things i was part of a group that helped make webcasting possible it was very exciting 
but there wasn't a sense of overall cohesion. So how do you have overall cohesion, Josh, if everyone's busy hacking? Uh, well, that's a hack that is yet to be made, I guess. Um, I, I think the answer is going to be emergent, uh, at least into the, in the way that it ends up manifesting, and whether that's a Facebook platform or uh, you know intelligent filtering or what, I, I don't know. And obviously, those are both technology solutions, so most likely completely incorrect. But um, what you were saying earlier about the future of the corporation really struck me because I, I ended up doing a lot of discussions with entrepreneurs here in New York. There's a, a huge upsurge in people that are, are becoming entrepreneurs and are freelancers and whatnot. And what we're seeing is that there's a lot of folks who are very talented who have um, gone and worked at companies and gotten fed up and then left and then gone and worked at a company and then got fed up and then left. And now they've made enough contacts and gotten good enough at whatever it is that they do that they just self-assemble groups based on the project that they have at hand. And they're getting more and more successful at doing this. Well, there's no structure around that. And it's not, it's not scaling to hundreds of people. It's a handful of people in any particular case. And yet it's happening more and more that, you know, a big company could go to EO to do an ad campaign, or they could go to that one guy that had a party who seemed to really get something and his six people are Who's going to underprice them anyway, right? Right. 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 Exactly. Oh, my sister is an example of this. She's a, she does, among other things, brand consulting, and she did it for some of the biggest uh, companies in the world. <laughs> I won't say who. But, uh, you know, she now lives in Canada and she does it independently and she still does excellent work. And I'm sure it's a lot easier to work with her and one other person than an yeah. entire agency that's going to, where everyone wants to get in the project, right? Because your success at that firm is, I'm on that. I mean, I remember working with a, a firm agency that where everyone was like on the project. So they just bloated the hell out of the project and made it not really work for the client. Yeah. But you, you are your network. Uh, when push comes to shove, it, it, even in big companies, you can have, um, you know, the one thing that we also make mistakes of, and since I've been consulting with some big companies also, is that we think that they're all one big thing. And they're mm -hmm. not. They're made up of lots of different people who have their own networks inside. And there are lots of reasons that people, you know, usually in the middle of the country, I'm teasing, <laughs> you know, like working at big companies. They like stability and they like all that. But I'm always reminded by the smart ones who figured out how to hack. And I don't know if you know this book, Josh, but it's, um, what is it called? Like orbiting the corporate hairball or something like that? The, the job, it's, it's literally called, I was literally given this book when I walked into P&G. And I can't believe I don't have it in front of me, but it was like managing the corporate hairball, which is really kind of like what you're talking about. Like, how do you hack your way through big organizations? And there are people within these companies who actually find gratifying because they, they're, they're, they, their whole, they, they realize that their work life is their network of people, whether in a company or outside. I think yeah. it's the people are sort of, it's the ones that take jobs at companies that think it's about the job, you know, <laughs> and their title as opposed uh. to you know, their value and what they do, which is, I, I, I'm very excited to hear that New York is getting more of that sort of organic fluid emergent stuff happening because there's just so many talented people that are like hiding away in places. Problem is New yeah, York but, is but they, they're gonna need they're going to need the same kind of pain, I think, Josh, that yeah. your example guy in Ottawa had. They're, they're probably going to get laid off and then they'll be like, what do I do? Well, which is good. Isn't that when all innovation happens, right? Good. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not promoting that we fire everybody, but, but and yes, that is often the way. There is another pain point that comes up often, and that is this is actually really entertaining to me. The one difference we did see between the Gen Y or the Millennials and older generations is that younger folks tend to understand the value of their network 
And so, yes. so for example, um, I think it was, where was my, it was some enormous um, company in the UK that did, you know, building and mining and all this stuff. And the person that was in charge of hiring was having a hell of a time because young people would come in and they'd say, uh, so how environmentally are you? Um, what are your work-life balance measures? Um, you know, do you, or do you have any software that we're restricted from using? And you'd say, yeah, well, you can't use any social software here. And they'd say, okay, goodbye. Right? That's right. it. Like, there's no more conversation to be had there. Because if I can't use my network while I'm here, then when I leave here, I will not have built my network at all. In fact, it will have damaged my network, and that's not worth the cost. And that's something that older generations haven't grasped as well or as intuitively. Not as intuitively, right, right. Well, because they associate the social network with only wasting time and not getting anything done. Yeah, yeah. When, when, you, when your understanding of Facebook is there are pictures of kitties wearing hats, you know, it's, it's hard to make the gap or bridge the gap between that and your corporate bottom line. Yeah, the, that the value is in, you know, the, as, as we've coded off in the thick relationship. We don't have that much time left, and, we, and, I, and I know, Josh, that you have a hard stop coming up soon. But one thing I wanted to ask you, which Heather doesn't know about, is you are the kind of a, the ultimate tumbler in your personal life, or hacker, soft hacker, to use that word. I mean, you get invited to stuff. You show up speaking at stuff. You've had conversations with C-suite people that most people would go through channels. Is there any really fun example you have about some of the ways that you've ended up in places you're like, how did I end up here just because I hacked the system that you want to share with us? Because <laughs> you have some good ones that you want to share publicly. Yeah, let me think. What, what do I want to... You know, you're really asking... This is, this is just like how he gets into cool parties or meets interesting No, 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 no. Work. Work and, and networks and projects and meeting smart people. Not fun. Not... I mean, it might work for parties too. I haven't talked to Josh about that part of his life, but um, <laughs> I'm talking more about the cool projects and stuff that you get, that you do. And it's just really fascinating how if you don't sort of look at the world, if you look at a system more broadly or less structured, how it sort of, you just weave your way through this stuff. I, I mean, I've always, we, we've talked about this. It's amazing to me. Um, Any tidbit you want to share to people who, who are like, oh God, I wish I could do X or Y or, or a fun story? Come on, yeah. share a good one. Come on. It's a, well, it's an odd thing. I mean, a lot of it is basically like doing your homework, right? So like, if you're going someplace where you know someone who's very influential is going to be, Google them. Like, it, this does not sound complicated, but you would be shocked and dismayed to, to discover how many people do not actually look up anything of relevance to the people that they are trying to get in touch with. Um, then, th then once you've done that, then you are in a position where you can do the next step, which is grow a pair, which is... <laughs> something that's also apparently phenomenally lacking in, in most social situations. Um, you know, like, when I got to go to TED, the only speech that I attended was my own, because I recognized that I may not get to come back here, and there were a lot of amazing people, and I was going to watch these things on my iPhone later anyway. So I just spent the entire time roaming the halls, walking up to people that I knew or didn't know or had seen in a magazine or whatnot, and asked them stupid questions because I knew nothing about their background. So like Craig Venter was standing around, right? And I went and said, hey, you know, synthetic genomics, I don't know anything about that. How do I get started? And we had an interesting conversation about it. 
Or conversely, at one point, uh, Sergey Brin and his wife were standing, you know, having a quick tete-a-tete in a corner. And I was standing a respectful distance away because I had a question. And uh, eventually they finished and, they, you know, with body language expressed, okay, we are open to being approached now if we must, you know. And I walked up <laughs> and Sergey said, you know, I'm really sorry, but I'm just about to run into a session. And I said, it's okay. I, actually, I'm, I want to talk to her. Because that's a big question for her about, you know, 23andMe, which I think is just a freaking amazing product. And it was, you know, totally, I'm not trying to paint anyone in a bad light here, but it was sort of funny because I'd done some homework and I knew what I was interested in. And it was a delightful way to start a conversation, right? So, but at the same time, you know, I talked to, to other people that were there. They're like, dude, I saw you just spoke to Sergey Brin. And I said, that's right. I said, I'm not here to talk to you, Sergey. I'm here to talk to your wife. And they're like, and then they get this gobsmacked look on their face, right? <laughs> it's like treating people like people. Yeah, I know. It's, it's phenomenal. It's very bizarre. Yeah, I would say, like, from my experience, the most success I've had is because, I guess, I'm lucky I was raised to do that. Like, talk to anybody and just talk to them like a person. And yep. I, one thing I want to say, especially to women who are listening, because I think a lot of times women are nervous to talk to people they don't know or they want to wait to be invited. Um, you you really can't say anything wrong. There's no mistake. If someone's going to be all full of themselves or, you know, dismiss you, there's nothing you can do about that. But amazingly, the most earnest, like present, just human interest is probably the thing that's going to grab, uh, make a connection, have the person be willing to talk to you. Not, uh, here's who I am and what I need you to do for me. Or, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I, I recently got to sit down with, um, uh, have lunch with Carol Pope, who who we've connected on Twitter, and she is, you know, was very had a big impact on my life. She's the first lesbian I ever knew existed. She's a huge rock star in Canada. It's like just very big deal, I won lots of awards, and uh, you know, still you know pretty successful singer musician. But you know, when I was growing up, was was like it, or one of you know very big. And I really didn't want to talk about that most of the time I talked to her. I mean, I did want to acknowledge her and thank her, and I did. And, I, and as I expected, that didn't matter so much to her, I mean, to hear that. Right. Um, I would think, you know, with the better known you are, everyone telling you that thing you did, you know. Like, Paul Simon doesn't probably need to hear Bridge <laughs> Over Trouble Water is the best song he ever wrote a thousand times, but it probably is more interested in, like, I don't know, like Josh, that how you figured out how to get packages your back door. I'm looking at your website. You're like, like some some little thing like that's probably much more interesting. Or wanting to figure out where he got a good sandwich, you know, right. is much more important. Right. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because my first job out of school was working for a web dev firm, and one of their clients was a, was a radio station, and I had <laughs> to type faster than everybody, so I got to go to some rock show, and this was, you know, back in the beginning of of the dark ages. So there were, they had set up a chat room so that these rock stars could come and sit down and communicate with their fans in this chat room, right? Like this was cutting edge at the time. And because I typed the fastest, I was supposed to sit down there and transcribe for these rock stars that could not be expected to type. So <laughs> I was sitting there and the, the Cure, I don't know if you know the band, The Cure. How could still, I not know The Cure? <laughs> okay. Talk it to You're here. talking to a Canadian and a Brit from the 80s. All please. right, well, so, so they show up and the entire room, which was basically full of handlers and whatnot, everyone, like, flattened themselves back against the wall. And this is a huge room, you know. It's, like, one of those rooms with, like, a 50-foot-long spread of different kinds of food and ice sculptures and blah, blah, blah. And they walk in, and you could have heard a freaking pin drop. And I'm on the far end of the room, and I'm like, okay, well, 
no one's saying anything. How awkward is this? So I stand up, I'm like, hey, uh, you guys are here for the computer thing? And they're like, uh, yeah, yeah. So they came over, and they looked really tired. I'm like, are you guys really tired? And they're like, well, we're a bit jet-lagged. Yeah, we just got off this big set, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, why don't you stay here? Uh, I'll tell you what's up with this computer thing. And Robert Smith was like, oh, this computer stuff, that's interesting, you know? So we sat down, and we shared a couple cigarettes and talked about the Internet and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, we, I showed him how to get online and type and stuff. And then I think we... I think we broke into Citibank. He was really impressed with that. But, you know, we did, a few th- we did a few things that he, you know, that he was not, didn't know anything about. It was not a part of his world at all. And we didn't talk about his music at all because, you know, he just finished performing. He didn't want to talk about that. But we had a great conversation about world travel and, you know, all this other stuff, which, you yeah. know. At the end of the day, you were talking about Googling your, the person, like, know what, what is, what bring what bring you know brings value to people the network I mean what is and the thing is that that people often overestimate what brings value to others sometimes just being a caring present person is a lot especially if you're used to only being treated as a right. famous person or a provider of one thing rather than don't yeah. I get to you know right I yeah, have absolutely. kids and relationship problems too you know even though I'm whoever <laughs> yeah yeah I have to say that was one thing that was really fun was sitting there talking to this 40 year old rock star with hair totally teased up covered with makeup um you know and talking about how he'd had a problem with getting shoes shipped over right right like it was just phenomenally human and, and you could tell he really liked that you could tell a dirty joke to someone who was supposedly quote-unquote famous like that that apparently counts for a lot good to know right on josh do we not have much more time with josh deb i think josh, i got a pounce say, yeah he's got I, a pounce though and you have to go bounce and um, you know meet famous. What are you doing? To meet famous people. Yeah, I gotta go meet some <laughs> famous people now. I want to ask you one last thing before we go. Since you seem, you know, you're a coder, and you're all about how do I make this system work for me, I want to hear your response to Mark Zuckerberg seeming to be doing that in the beginning of Social Network in the movie. You know, like, I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> okay. We'll All right, then. You see it. <laughs> oh, too good. Too good. So you're going off to meet with some famous people and tell them dirty jokes and probably a royal family or two. And, you know, <laughs> I'm telling you, Josh, Josh has the best stories around this stuff. Totally. Josh Klein, thanks so much for, for being with us. Your, the, the book is Hacking Work. It's hackingwork.com. There's some, you know, digital downloads. He's at josh.is. And uh, thanks for being here on Tumble Vision. We're going to stick around and talk a little bit about the Rally for Sanity. But yep. please send Tumblers our way. We do want to have a, a TumbleCon at some point within the next year. So people that you're meeting in your travels, Josh, who are good at this stuff or naturally want to share, you know, or help kind of figure out some of the ways they're working through people or getting together with them, we'd love to have them on the show or have them, you know, learn about them. Excellent. Thanks Absolutely. so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for coming, Josh. We'll see you uh, on the, one of the coasts one of these days. Sounds good. Take care, guys. Goodbye. Cheers, Josh. Goodbye. So in a little bit of extra time, yeah. Deb, Kevin, anything from this week you guys want to get into that we missed? Well, we talked a little bit. We saved the, the politics talk till you got on. We talked a little bit about IAW and what was going on there. And my takeaway from that was I love the fact that all the geeks are getting together to talk about identity, but they do tend, as we know, uh, to be a little bit um, overly sim- 
But you know, it's a little, it's a, it's de definitely missing the human factor, as if you know the technology is going to solve all problems. But but it's important for the Internet Identity Workshop folks to figure out the standards. It, it is a standards group. But my takeaway from being there, I don't know about you, Kevin, was like, wow, it it it, it we need more um, sociologists in that group. Maybe you can explain <laughs> for those who are listening what that means. It's a standards issue, just real quickly, Kevin. What Internet Identity Standards means? Oh, we we spent it earlier. We, we, talk, we talked about okay, it earlier. Great. Sorry, we talked sorry to earlier. cover that. Okay, so any any other last thing as we as we wrap up? I did go to the rally for sanity. If you want to see my, uh, I was on East meets West on Twitter the other day. There's a link to that. I'll I can drop that on television. It's also at subvert.com. And uh, it was the the key thing to me is that it was a non-rally rally. Um, I don't think it tumbled. There was there was tumbling there at all. I think that would have been really fantastic. But that is not the way the Daily Show works. They did lots of other things right. that were awesome. Tumbling is the antithesis of that show. Well, um, what, what happened there? Because believe it or not, you know, I watched the show that they did about their show, but I, I you know, there was, I didn't see a lot of coverage because I was away. Like, what actually happened at the rally? Like, they had music, they had speeches. Not a lot. Not a lot. That's what I was wondering. It was, that was sort of the point. I mean, there was, it was a show. They did sketches. Like, they did, they told everyone it was 12 to 3. They just had their roots come on and do a concert beforehand. Then Adam Savage and I forget his partner's name on Mythbusters did some, you know, faux experiments of basically getting the crowd to do waves in different ways. Um, I mean, I think the pre-show stuff was pretty not so interesting. It would have been great if they'd let people know that they could expect the actual show to start at 1. Like, it wasn't it, the things people expect in massive groups like that are kind of being hepped up and whipped up. And this was the opposite. It was sort of an ironic, silly, uh, isn't blowing stuff out of proportion absurd kind of moment. You know, let's have reasonableness and uh, mock fear and mock the media for, for creating fear. So that was really the point of it. There's quite a bit of music, more than I would have imagined. Yeah, uh, it was very mellow, mellow, like Jeff Tweedy and an old acoustic guitar of Mavis Staples. So I found it a little surprising. I wasn't loving all the music, but it was all consistent with the kind of middle-of-the-road theme of keeping things kind of chill. And it, the next day, it did occur to me, it was radical in the sense that we Americans, I think, maybe have no experience just being together without having to, you know, rage about something. I, I My takeaway, just, you know, from the two minutes of news bites or whatever, is... Um, the signs, the people there just seemed smart. <laughs> it was a giant... Because the signs were smart. Oh, yeah? There are a lot. Everyone, I think, it's a bunch of collegiate people. That's for sure. Well, I, I don't know. The people that I saw seemed, you know, contemporaries as well. I didn't, I didn't think of... I'm sure there was a hell of a lot of college kids. But it just seemed really, you know... Like, it seemed like, I, I guess we're showing our bias, but it seemed like, you know, same people getting together to show that we, there is a middle ground here, you know? <laughs> we're like the normal, you know, and having a good time with it. I don't know. Yeah, well, yes, I, it's a rally of NPR listeners like us. Yeah. Yes. Was, I don't, I mean, I'll put some of my video, uh, uh, basically it was a giant white NPR. Oh, really? Time. There were some people of color, sense. but not, you know, not the yeah, majority. They, they did hire the roots to come play, so... The Roots? I haven't heard them in a while. That's cool. So, so the, the, the quote that everyone retweeted from it was, um, if we amplify everything, we hear nothing. Because it's nothing. very relevant to the internet, isn't it? And, and yes. I, think it's, I think that's actually bollocks. Because um, if we amplify uh -huh. everything, everything gets louder. And the problem He's, is that they yeah. amplify the wrong things. You know, I, the, 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 the nice thing about the internet 
and that isn't like broadcasting is that we do amplify all the little silly things too, and that you know, the, and the, the, all the stuff that everyone makes fun of um, on for Twitter and Facebook about talking about the mundane is exactly what Stuart was was saying in the more sort of poetic bit about look, the, we, we cooperate every day and all these things happen, um, and the media gets into this sort of strange circle about talking about whatever they've they've got fascinated with and, and loops that up and ignores. Um, the sort of quotidian beauty of the world. Wow. Quotidian beauty of the world. I don't think I, uh, that's it. Be better than that. I I'm think not about that, that. <laughs> On that note, yeah. um, a resident well-read Brit, uh, thank you, Kevin, for what were you doing in high school? I just want to know. Like, what, what was I doing in high school? High school? Do we, I didn't get to read whatever it was you were reading. Yeah, it's because he went to a good educational institution. I just <laughs> grew up in a house with lots of books and never stopped reading. And that's, you know. I never I, stopped reading, but I had access to different books, I think. That, that may be it. It's a question of what's there. But, but now we will have access to all the books. This, this is a beautiful thing. And, and, okay, well, we'll have to get more into Kevin next time. Yeah. I think <laughs> the future thread we'll bring together. So next week we have... Um, Dog Searles. Doc Searles, which is just an amazing uh, guy. He's one of the stalwarts of the web, really. Uh, and he's at Berkman Center, and he's working on, what is it, VRM? How would, yes, yes project, project VRM. Which is about people advocating for themselves in the commercial sphere. Very uh, well said. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that's the, the most succinct, because I'm, I'm working on it with Kevin also, and it, that's, a, that's very succinct. I like it. Okay. I like it. If only tumbling were that succinct. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but we've decided that the point of it is that it's not. Exactly. The point is to make it good, not short. And we're standing by that. Yes. <laughs> right. We're committed. We're committed to something. I don't know why. All right. Well, I'm committed studied, to beauty. Committed to quotidian beauty of, of the everyday. We are thrilled to have you all. Thanks for being with us as always, Zeno and Rasuzu and everyone who's um, been, been with the show and is listening in. Yes, Andrew, I am not my keywords. Uh, have a wonderful week. And we will see you guys here next week. Please come, Doc Searles. Please spread the word. And please, please, people, go to iTunes and rate Tumble Vision and review it uh, so that this can reach other people. We implore you. We ask you kindly. We, we will give you a cookie. Thank <laughs> you very much. We'll see you next week. Good night. Bye. Bye.